0: Hello, I'm Elizabeth Sladen, and in Doctor Who I played the intrepid Time Lord's companion, Sarah Jane Smith. I'm here to invite you on a journey by way of the time-travelling powers of the BBC Radio Archive, a lot safer and more comfortable than by TARDIS, believe me. We'll be rediscovering a wealth of broadcasting gems long forgotten since their original transmission, some of which will come as a surprise to even the most avid fan. To begin our journey... Another very good friend of the Doctor's presents a history of the television series we have all come to know and adore in 30 years. First broadcast on BBC Radio 2 on the 20th of November, 1993.
1: News has just come in that President Kennedy has been shot. There's no news yet of his condition. The world was shocked to hear of the assassination of President Kennedy. Most people can remember where they were and what they were doing when they heard the news. Perhaps they were watching the television and hearing this for the very first time. The theme tune that has, for the last three decades, introduced the weekly adventures of a most remarkable time traveler, Doctor Who. I'm Nicholas Courtney. If you're a Doctor Who fan, you'll probably remember me as one of the Doctor's closest allies, Brigadier Alastair Gordon Lethbridge-Stewart. Having had the privilege to work with the Doctor on numerous occasions, I hope that I'm the best qualified to give you the complete story behind the world's longest-running science fiction television series, and the reasons why it's lasted so long. Now, thirty years is a lot of time to cut in just sixty minutes. so. Let's journey back to a fog-shrouded London. To be precise, Saturday, November 23rd, 1963. Inside a small scrap merchant in Todders Lane, two young schoolteachers, Ian Chesterton and Barbara Wright, are anxiously searching for one of their pupils, Susan Foreman, little realising that they're about to embark on a journey into the unknown. It's
2: a police box. What on
1: earth is they doing here? Well, these things are usually on the street. A
2: did you feel it? It's a faint vibration. It's alive!
1: When a white-haired, elderly gentleman in Edwardian clothes arrives on the scene, Ian and Barbara force their way into the police box and make a startling discovery.
2: You don't deserve any explanations. You pushed your way in here, uninvited and unwelcome. I think you ought to leave. It's an illusion! It must be! Illusions, indeed! You see you can't fit an enormous building into one of your smaller sitting rooms? No. But you've discovered television, haven't you? Yes. Then by showing the enormous building on your television screen, you can do what seemed impossible, couldn't you?
1: At the end of the first episode, the doctor sets the controls and the school teachers find themselves unwilling passengers on a voyage through time and space. But how did this all begin? Well, as a matter of fact, in a small BBC office... A number of studio executives were trying to decide on a new children's programme to fill the Saturday evening tea-time slot between Grandstand and the Pop Music Quiz Jukebox Jury. A number of ideas were considered and then rejected, when the BBC's then-head of drama, Sidney Newman, suggested a science fiction series. Having previously produced an adventure serial for ABC television called Pathfinders in Space, Newman was no stranger to the subject. Through Donald Wilson, the head of the BBC's script department, he gave writers Anthony Coburn and David Whittaker the outline for a story about an elderly time-traveller. Shortly afterwards, Newman appointed Verity Lambert, his former assistant at ABC, as producer.
0: So I went from being a production assistant, really, to being a producer on this um, new show, which was supposed to break new ground and use all the latest techniques, but we were put in the older studio that the BBC had, um, Studio D in Lime Grove, which I have a great affection for, because we did the first year almost with Doctor Who there. And um, it was strange in a lot of ways, because it was um, a children's show, but was not being produced by the children's department, which caused a certain amount of aggravation within the BBC. It was wonderful to work on, because there was, although there was a format, within that format you could do almost anything you wanted. So any sort of imaginative idea that came in from a writer which appealed to David Whittaker, who was my story editor and me, we would just commission.
1: Verity Lambert's associate producer, Mervyn Pinfield, suggested a number of actors to play the time traveller, referred to in the script as simply Doctor Who. Lambert, however, approached veteran film
0: actor William Hartnell I did consider quite a few actors, but I thought of William Hartnell for two reasons, really, is that I had seen him play the sergeant major in a Granada television um, half-hour series called um, The Army Game, I think it was called. And He was this rather irascible, terribly difficult sergeant major. And then he did this wonderful role as the talent scout, the rugby talent scout in the sporting life, where he was rather sad and Pathetic figure, um, and I thought he combined. He had the ability as an actor to combine being lovable and and touching some of the time, and rather irascible and difficult on other parts of the time. And uh, uh, he read the script and just loved it. I mean, he felt that the part had almost been written for him.
2: Have you ever thought what it's like to be wanderers in the fourth dimension? Have you to be exiles? Susan and I are cut off from our own planet, without friends or protection. But one day, we shall get back.
1: But the first episode of Doctor Who had to be repeated the following Saturday, as it was completely overshadowed by the tragic events surrounding the assassination of President Kennedy. But four weeks later, the first complete story, set in the Stone Age, had attracted a viewing audience of six million people. The programme was an enormous success, And as actress Jessica Carney recalls, earned her grandfather a huge fan following. Whole schools, whole classes would write to him and he'd have, you know, a teacher enclosing 30 letters from kids. Basically, dear Doctor Who, dear Uncle Who, dear Mr. Who, things like that, and covered in pictures of Alex and other monsters and things like that and saying things like i do hope they don't get you and um hope you know and 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 i like your tardis and all sorts of wonderful things like that no it was was wonderful and people went on writing to my grandmother even after my grandfather died but it wasn't only william hartnell's excellent portrayal of the title role that made the program so popular the whole concept of doctor who was unique well take the doctor's name for instance doctor who
2: doctor what doctor Dr. Who? Dr. Who, did you say? Eh? Dr. Who? What
1: are you talking about? Well, if the character of the Doctor had captured the imagination of the viewers, what about his strange time and space machine called the TARDIS? Hey, how
2: would you do that, then? Well, it's bigger on the inside
1: than the outside. Well, Sergeant, aren't you going to say that it's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside?
2: Everybody else does. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? It's because insides and outsides are not in the same dimension. You see, there's the TARDIS is dimensionally transcendental. Why don't you come with us? In that old box? (laughs) We can travel anywhere and everywhere in that old box, as you call it, regardless of space
1: and time. Audiences were so intrigued by the workings of the TARDIS, the Doctor Who scriptwriters, Malcolm Hulk and Terence Dix, tried their level best to explain the theory behind such a complicated mechanism. In their book, The Making of Doctor Who, They asked readers to imagine what a three-dimensional object, such as an ordinary cardboard box, would look like in a two-dimensional world called flatland. They even produced a diagram of a two-dimensional projection of a three-dimensional projection of a four-dimensional cube. Or whatever that means.
2: Not quite clear, is is, but you're not certain. You don't understand. (laughs) I, I knew you wouldn't.
1: In keeping with Sidney Newman's original concept, The Doctor was unable to pilot the TARDIS properly, and the appeal of the series centred on the travellers having no control over their destination. And that unique sound it makes when dematerialising? Well, that was the brainchild of Brian Hodgson at the BBC Radiophonic Workshop. I got this sort of concept of things
3: coming towards you and going away from you at the same time, and um, sort of the ripping of the fragment of space. I was sitting in the Kensington Odeon one night, and in the interval of the cinema, I sketched out how it was going to go. And I wanted this ripping sound. And we had this wonderful old piano frame here. I took my mum's front door key and I scraped it down one of the bass strings. And then we used that as a basic sound. Uh, we pitched it, um, cut them together, um, mixed them with other things. On them, on And then we turned the whole thing backwards so you've got the echoes coming beforehand as well.
1: But Brian and his colleagues weren't only called upon to produce sounds for alien machines. The program's unique signature tune was also the creation of the Radiophonic Workshop and composer Ron Grainer.
3: He scribbled a few bars on a piece of manuscript paper he'd torn off from the top of something else he was working on, leaning against this filing cabinet in the office, gave it to Delia Derbyshire and really disappeared. About a month or so later uh, Dilly had finished it, and Ron came and listened to it and said, gosh, did I really write that?
1: The TARDIS and the theme music were to remain constant throughout the show's run, but not so the Companions, who, sometimes unwilling, accompanied the Doctor on his various adventures. Some, like Dodo, played by Jackie Lane, only stayed a brief time above.